Hey everyone, I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up and move the ball. Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. Now today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is a Fortune 100 senior executive, Mr. Andrew Coleman. Now Andrew serves as the chief commercial officer for GE Aviation's digital business. In this role, he leads a global team of professionals focused on unlocking the power of data and insights to the commercial aviation, military, OEM, and aviation lessor industry segments. As a commercial leader, Andrew has a global responsibility for sales, consulting, alliances, customer success, solution architecture, business development, and customer support. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jen. I really appreciate you having me. Well, I'm really excited to chat with you for a number of reasons. First off, we both like football. That's important. That's fun. But more importantly, I think we both align in our leadership approaches and how there's so much that we both believe you can take away from the world of sports and apply that to the business setting. So first off, share with us a little more about what it is you do as the Chief Commercial Officer for Aviation Digital. This is a multi-part question. And then tell us a little bit more about your team. And thirdly, tell us about some elements from the world of sports that you incorporate into the business context. I'd love to. As we dive into this, let me first say I am so proud of you for taking this passion to the next level and just seeing what you've become. It's such an honor to be on the show today and just to see this business take off because I know it's been a dream of yours for a long time. So a little bit about who I am and what I do. I am responsible for the commercial aspects, as you said, of our aviation digital business. For those that don't know the ins and outs of GE, uh, big businesses we still participate in today include power, healthcare, and aviation. Those are kind of our three main cores. There's been times GE did television sets and refrigerators banking and financing, nuclear power, all kinds of things. So the history of GE, today, those are really our three core businesses. As you can imagine, these businesses all have about 100 years, or in some businesses, more history. And with that comes great founders like Thomas Edison. It comes great innovation through not just a couple of years, but decades and even a century But it also comes with the need to constantly change and reinvent yourself. And so my role sits inside a 100-year-old business, aviation. But at the heart of it is, how do we take things that have been done either manually or mechanically and find ways to do them digitally? Our North Star is really three things. Our customers, when we show up, love, love, love us. And we'll get into that more in a second. We talk about the business and what that means. GE Aviation. Our parent company, our founder, our investor cannot live without us. And the third is in everything we do, people tend to think about finances when I say this, but in everything we do, we give back more than we take. And so that's the guiding principle of our business. We've been in establishment for about a decade. And over the last three or four years, I feel like really hitting stride and living out that purpose in a meaningful way. Uh, To your question about sports, I uh, played baseball through college. And if I had to pick one lesson, I love golf to this day. I love football, as you mentioned, I played basketball through high school, just anything that was competitive in sports. 
always drew a lot of enthusiasm out of me. But there was one really, really weird thing about me in baseball. I had a coach early on in my career that taught me of all the things you can do for your team, perhaps the greatest one is when that pitcher makes a bad pitch, are you willing to let it hit you so that you get the base to advance what the team needs and take that pain ahead of wanting to hit a home run, wanting to be the hero, wanting to look good? And he actually has practice which today, I don't know if you'd be allowed to do this, getting hit by pitches and how to get hit by a pitch and all that. It's funny because that stuck with me so much that I'm sure it's long come and gone, but there was a time, I believe, an NCAA record was established. I got hit by eight consecutive pitches or plate appearances. So eight times to bat, all eight times I got hit by a pitch. As you can imagine, it was a doubleheader and this team did not like me and kept throwing at me and I kept getting hit. I share that to say in business today, I see so much about leading, about being number one, about being inspiring, and those are all good things. But I think a ton of greatness and a ton of wisdom comes in when you learn, how do I be a good number two? How do I learn how to take one for the team? How do I learn how to be a support for the person that's going to bat behind me and the team that's counting on me to get on base and score a run? And so if I had to pick one thing, there's a million things I've learned from sports. That's the one that probably stands out. Oh, that's great. And you and I have a mutual friend, Brian Bennett, who talks about being the wingman and does a lot of training around that. So I really um, like that you brought that up because it's not always about being number one yourself. It's about doing what you need to do for the benefit of the team and to make sure that team is supported in the way that they need to be supported to achieve the outcome. And I tell you, the irony in life, I said this in an audience call not that long ago, and I probably had three or four people file an HR complaint about it, but I just think it's really true. There's nothing you can buy. There's nothing I believe you can drink. And there's nothing I believe you can smoke that feels as good as helping somebody else. And I completely agree with that. Whether that's at home, whether that's any facet of your life. And it's such a a fallacy because you see whether it's you're watching TV or you're looking at your phone or anywhere media is present, does anything in media say do something for someone else? Maybe every once in a while, but like 99.9% of media is you, 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 get what you can, as much as you can, as fast as you can. It's all about you. And so as a team, we're trying to just fight that and be very countercultural. And when we do, we find the feeling we get is so deep and lasting, it blows away any good feeling we could get from the things I discussed. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And you mentioned earlier purpose. And when I worked at GE in the aviation systems business, we, we spent a lot of time coming up with the purpose statements for aviation systems. And it was a great way to connect people to the mission, right? And what we were trying to do as a business. And so talk to us about you know the importance of connecting your people on your teams to the mission and the why of the organization. I think it's vital. If you come to work every day and you wonder, am I needed? And in a company of 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, even a company of 30, it's sometimes often those dark moments. If I didn't come to work today, would the business go on? And am I needed without that purpose, without that mission, without that Here's the greater good we solve. And yes, we do need to make money so we can afford to pay everybody and keep this great thing going. But that said, without that, it's so, so hollow. As I look at the window here, I'm in Austin, Texas. And one of the very real business challenges is if we don't feed that part of our spirit, if we don't feed that, why am I here? There are a thousand options within five miles of this address where our team could choose to go work. And so it's just a matter of, from that perspective, You want to keep people that are engaged, that are fun to work with, that are excellent in their craft. 
you've got to fill that why. And so it's just not even an option. Now, the beauty is in aviation, we get to be a part in a very biased opinion of perhaps humanity's greatest invention. Some would argue the computer, some would argue maybe the wheel, I don't know, but to me, the airplane and what that has done, in my case, to be able to conduct business anywhere around the globe in less than 24 hours, physically, not just through a phone call or a letter, is is just unrivaled in what it's done for humanity, what it's done for just society. And so you, you automatically get that purpose. And then just to double click on our business for a second, we were actually started not doing what you would guess, making engines more reliable, airplanes faster. Actually, we were started around safety. The business was based here in Austin from, they let me say this, a group of nerds at the University of Texas that had deep passion for two things, aviation and safety. Third actually was data. And they found by taking data off of an airplane and looking at it in a way that had never been viewed before, historically, airplane data was looked upon like a Polaroid picture. Let me take a snapshot. Okay, I think I got a feeling of what that flight looked like. As you remember, old Polaroid pictures, they're fuzzy. They kind of wear out. You really can't tell a whole lot. If you contrast that to a high-definition movie, remember the first time you saw a football game on television in high-definition and you could see the blade of grass or the grain of leather in the football? You're like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen football like this before. It was just a whole different experience. Well, in the same vein, this is what we've done with flight data. We've now created a high-definition movie for every flight that allows us to see a lot of things that ultimately allows us to give advice and direction to our customers about how to operate and fly as safe as humanly possible. And so every time we look to the skies and we see a plane and we see the overall record of our industry, we're really proud that we get to take part in that. Sure. Yeah. And and I loved being a part of aviation. And I'm just going to share with our listeners what the purpose statement was when, when I was there was we invent the future of flight we lift people up and we bring them home safely. And just when you think about those words, it really mm-hmm. connects you to something amazing. And so the, the reason I bring up purpose statement is I think it's important to everyone listening that you need to connect your people to the why. Why is it that you're doing what you're doing? And that's how you're going to keep people engaged, excited, motivated, inspired to come to work and to do great things. So another term that I remember hearing a bunch when I was a GE was the need to play on offense. So what does playing on offense look like to you? What does that mean to you? It means, first of all, one of the things you you see at GE when you're as big and large as you are is we have a lot of brain power. And it's really easy to think all of the wisdom and all of the insight comes out of a lab or comes out of a PhD or someone in one of our buildings. And to me, playing on offense is you got to go to where the opportunity and many times where the problem lies, and that's with our customers. And so we've been very intentional. And when I look at our competition in the aviation digital space, most of them run commercial functions from a home office. We've done the opposite. And so the overwhelming majority of our team, you won't find living in Austin or Cincinnati or London. You'll find them living in Dallas, right next door to American Airlines, in Dubai, right next to Emirates, in Washington, D.C., right next to the Pentagon, et cetera, et cetera. We've really deployed our team to be where the customer is. Underneath that, our number one thing of going on offense is we have a very unique metric that I've not seen other commercial teams use, but it's served us really well. And that metric is for every 10 times we touch our customers, nine times we serve and one time we sell. I know it's very counterintuitive because you're like, wait a second, you have salespeople and you're telling them not to sell. And it's absolutely what we're telling them. We're telling them to be very present And when we think about the people that are present in our life a lot, who would you meet with five or six times over the course of a month? Somebody that brought a lot of value, somebody that cared about you, somebody that provided insight. This is exactly how we want to be known. 
somebody that's that frankly you want to give a badge to be on site every day in a desk because it's so valuable when they show up versus the alternative, which I would call almost playing defense. Oh, there's an RFP. Let's respond to it. Oh, let's go do our annual meeting with procurement and see if we can get away with the 3% escalation. Those are defensive moves that we try to stay away from versus the offensive moves I just mentioned. Sure. And what you're really getting at is building relationships. And that goes in no matter what industry or business you're in, mature business, startup, entrepreneur. At the end of the day, it's about building relationships and adding value. And when you do that, that's when you're going to see the the business relationships grow and the opportunities present themselves. So I think that's great. Big time. And I would add to that, so much of the value in relationship is being proactive versus reactive. And when I say that, what I mean is so often big companies do surveys and customers will say, I don't like the invoice or I don't like the sales team, right? Like whatever. And then there's immediately a task force and we put all the energy of the world and we get out that hammer and we whack that nail as hard as we can. And then we move on. And I think that's one level to do business. Let me contrast that with, I know at some point our customer is going to have a problem with our software. It's just the nature of software. And so before that moment ever happens, I sit down and say, in the very unlikely event, our software isn't working the way you expect. Would you like me to call you? Would you like my engineering team to be ready? Would you like to know how our website works so you can log a ticket? Would you like me to come in and see you? What would you like? And then listen. And then the key is when that moment happens, going and executing against that exactly as the plan was laid out in a way the customer's like, wow, this wasn't just a pitch. You really meant everything. And you're here at that point of need when I need you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's really showing the customer that you care and that you realize that things come up in business, right? Things don't always go perfectly. And so we're here to support you, customer XYZ, and, and being proactive in addressing that. So that way, if there is a problem, you can handle it in the most expedient manner instead exactly. of waiting. Yep. So to me, playing on offense is also about making the tough calls and having the courage to do so when needed. And great leaders aren't afraid to make those tough decisions. Can you share with us a time where you had to make a tough call? Gosh, almost every day, I feel like I have to make some tough calls, but there's definitely some seminal ones, right, that really, really stand out as tough calls. Ironically, I found in life, sometimes the things I sweat about the most, when I look back, it's like, wow, I can't believe I thought that was a tough call. That was a really, really easy decision looking back with the benefit of hindsight. But that moment, I didn't sleep, I didn't rest, anything. And so a lesson for myself, the things you think are the biggest, oftentimes you got to let them go because they're really not. Or even if they are, if you handle them in a high integrity way, you're going to be fine. And so honestly, the toughest call that I have to make in my job is the call when we just don't feel like someone's working out with the business. That's by far. And you would think, oh, no, the toughest call is go buy this business. Or the toughest call is, do you do this joint venture? Those are tough. But you honestly have a really, really capable team. You have a lot of good data. You get to know everybody. And so it's, it's easier the toughest call by far is when you've put forward the best coaching you can, the best direct feedback you can, and the person is just either not getting it or in some cases just doesn't have the talent to do it, at which point you have to make a change. And so by far, those are the toughest. And so one of the things I stole from Jack Welch actually early in my career is the moment you have to make that ultimate call of it's time for us to part ways, if that is even close to a surprise for somebody, you have failed them as a leader. That can never be a surprise. And I know in our DNA, it's so hard to tell people you're not meeting expectations. 
And yet I will tell you on the flip side as an employee, I'm sure you felt this as well. The question I come to work with every day, probably more than any other question is, am I doing a good job? And so just knowing and very direct feedback from my leader, you're doing a great job and here's why, or you're doing a bad job. And here's the things you need to get better. And then the key to that, and here's what I'm willing to do to help you. And so all that said, that is for me by far the toughest call. There are seasons and times when you make that call that, frankly, people aren't happy with you. you know, I'm kind of stating the obvious here and don't like you. And when you have to do those things as a leader, it's sometimes tough to just have that thick skin and say, I know I did the right thing. Even at this moment, I feel like a pretty rough human being. Sure. Yeah. It's never fun to tell anyone that uh, it's time to part ways, right? If they're not performing and they're not the right fit. But you bring up a really great point that I think it's imperative for us as leaders that we need to be continually communicating with our teams how they're doing because it's not fair to them if you don't. And it's so easy for people to not address the things that are negative or the things that are difficult to have conversations around. But all you're doing at the end of the day is you're hurting yourself, you're hurting the team, you're hurting the employee because they don't know per se that there is a deficiency unless you have that conversation and also show them that you're there to help them succeed. How can I help you? As you mentioned, I mean, that's a vital part of it as well. Um, So I, I appreciate you sharing that example. So sometimes when we are leading our teams, we have a team member that's dropped the ball on something critical. Mm-hmm. And share with us, how do you deal with that? If there's a situation where someone has dropped the ball, how do you handle that? So in a short answer, I love the question. As best as you humanly possibly can, given everything you have going on at that moment, you drop it all to help them. You don't. And I hear this all the time in big companies. We need to hold them accountable. Let's drive accountability, blah, 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 blah. And that's code for let's get them. Accountability is a real healthy, powerful thing when done properly. But we all, you, me, everybody have a day, have a moment where we drop the ball. Even the greatest running backs and the greatest wide receivers, they catch the ball and they fumble it from time to time. But if somebody else is right there to jump on it and pick them up, next thing you know, they're having the greatest game of their life. And I think the exact same thing is true in business. And so you have to quickly fight the urge on two fronts. Oh my gosh, I had a full schedule today. I don't have time for this. You got to make time and you got to clear it. You got to apologize and say, look, this person really, really needs me today or this team really, really needs me today. And then when you're through the moment, you got to do the postmortem to sit down and say, all right, what did we learn from this? And how are we going to do things different in the future? And I'll steal one of my favorite old business stories. Uh, A guy was working at IBM. This was like in the 50s, I believe, or the 60s, and had jumped into some sort of venture that he lost, I want to say 10 million, when 10 million was worth probably a billion in today's dollars. And everybody immediately, so he dropped the ball, fire him. Did you get rid of him? Did you can him? Did you make an example out of him? And Tom Watson, Jr., second CEO of IBM, said, absolutely not. I just spent $10 million training him. Why would the world would I do that? And so I think in in a very similar light, when someone drops the ball in our team, it's such a beautiful opportunity to not only train them and help them, but show them the kind of culture we are, which is, as you mentioned, I'm your wingman. It's time for me to help you out and be there for you. Right. And I think all of us have dropped the ball at some point, as you mentioned, right? And so how would we feel if everyone were quick to blame us and not help? That's not what we want. And so I think it's important for us when someone drops the ball on our teams or in our lives to keep our emotions in check and to really say, okay, 
you know what? They're human. We all have done this. Let's pick them back up. We're a team. We're in this together. And let's figure out how do we move the ball forward from here. Now, let me throw a contrast because I see the opposite sometimes happen where someone, quote unquote, drops the ball in an integrity or moral way. In that case, I think as a leader, it's incumbent. You immediately need to stop that behavior and take action to make sure that never, ever happens again, including if that person needs to leave, they cannot be a part of the team anymore. So often I've seen, oh, but they're great in sales. Oh, they brought in all these big deals. Oh, the business would never be the same without them. And and frankly, excuses are made. And we look the other way on a big moral ball drop. In that case, I think it's the exact opposite approach where you need to be direct, need to be rapid. And if it means that person can't be a part of the team anymore, it means that person can't be on the team anymore. Sure. I completely agree with that. And I appreciate that distinction. I mean, it's one thing if you're just busy and you drop the ball versus you had a moral and ethical and integrity misstep. That's very different. So talk to us about, you know, in football, football is a fast paced game. And when the ball snaps, sometimes there are split second decisions that are being made in the business setting. Sometimes we have to make those quick decisions as well. And we don't have time to get all the data or the facts that we would ideally like to have. So how do you deal with making decisions in these types of scenarios? Love that question. And that I get to go, as you know, around the world and do a lot of global business. One of my big, big envies of most of our teams is they speak English in a second language, whether that be Chinese, whether that be Japanese, whether that be Spanish, French. And so inevitably in a meeting where we'll speak English and translate, they get that free pause time where they can think of their answer. And eight seconds or 10 seconds can make all the difference in the world. Kind of like when a quarterback, if he has four seconds to throw a pass versus half a second, very different outcome. So unfortunately, I don't have that benefit, although I'm learning some of these languages piece by piece, bit by bit. And so honestly, the first thing I do is I, before every single meeting I have, not just the big ones, not just the C-suite, actually invoke my faith. And I ask the Lord to go with me in the meeting. And when I don't have wisdom, I ask him to provide it for me. Because I know on my own, I am limited. And frankly, I'm very deficient. But I also know that many times I've been in meetings, I'm not trying to get spooky, but I've said things like, wow, thanks for being my wingman right now, God, because I did not think of that on my own. That was not something that was just kind of popping out. Now, that said, there's a lot in preparation, just like in sports. Coaches always told me you're never, ever going to be better in a game than your best practice. And so the on the fly moment where you have to make a quick decision, most likely you knew you were going to get presented with that before you ever had the meeting or ever had the circumstance. The last thing I would say is the more you just get to experience life, while some of the actors do change, a lot of the themes, a lot of the challenges follow similar patterns. And having the beauty to draw on, oh yeah, I saw that pattern a year ago, and this is how we did it, and this is what worked and didn't work, and being able to draw on that in real time is very, very powerful. It's one of my favorite things about the human brain. As much as we marvel about digital and about Intel processors and supercomputers and all this stuff, there's never been a database or a computer even close to what we were given between our ears, which is our brain. And so that's such a powerful tool to have at a moment like this. Sure. Great example. Great answer. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk specifically about football and the football context, not how it translates to business anymore. So I know that you are a big Ohio State fan. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any college football coaches that you've observed at Ohio State or just in collegiate football who have really made a lasting impression on you as a great leader, both on and off the football field and why? 
Sure. So obsession I have outside of sports and aviation is reading. And of the books that I read, the ones I covet and love the most are books by football coaches. Secondarily, probably basketball coaches, but I love just team sport coaches over to individual sport coaches. And I love college football coaches. And so if I had to give you a quick kind of list, Urban Meyer's book several years ago was then followed up by a podcast you and I talked about, a guy by the name of Tim Kite. I'm actually taking some of their classes online right now uh, called Level 3 Leadership. I really, really get a lot out of that. Another person who's constantly providing just wisdom beyond probably his profession and vocation is Lou Holtz. I have drawn on through the years so many things from what Lou Holtz has had to say, how he says it. I wish so bad more of the coaches, frankly, would write books because who I'd love to read are some of the ones you've never heard of who was an offensive coordinator at a Division II school or a high school coach in North Dakota, because I'm sure there's just such amazing wisdom that doesn't even pop out. But of the college football coaches, the two I, I glean the most from, probably say Urban Meyer, I'd say Lou Holtz through the years. Oh, my favorite leadership book, I can't believe I almost missed it. I'm embarrassed to admit this, is uh, Bo Schembechler's Lessons on Leadership. And having grown up in Ohio and being just brought up to disdain the school up north, his book is by far the best leadership book I've ever read. I actually gave it to the entire leadership team of GE Aviation three years ago for Christmas. And it was funny to hear some of the stories of people that knew him and what it meant to them. But if you could read one leadership book, I would say Bo's Leadership Lessons by John Bacon, outstanding. And the last, he's on the basketball side, but just through the years, I've drawn so much wisdom from him, is John Wooden. Absolutely. love, love, love the way John Wooden went about things, his just simplicity to build greatness, just the pyramid of success, so many great things. Yes, John Wooden, definitely a legend in the basketball world. My son, actually, he's going to be 24 this year, but my son, when he was a kid, he actually used to go to John Wooden's basketball camps because we lived wow. out in California. So I got to meet John Wooden and my okay. son did too. So um, definitely resonate with you on, on John Wooden as well as Bo Schembechler. I actually had the chance to speak with a guy who had played for Bo back in the game where Ohio State had played Michigan in November of 1969. That's yeah, a huge game. And so that was kind of neat uh, to, to hear what it was like to play for Bo from someone, you know, who had played for him directly. So all the people that you've mentioned, Urban Meyer, great coach, Lou Holtz at Notre Dame, great. So if uh, anyone listening is not familiar with those books, I would definitely encourage you to to check out those football coaches. They are all legends and in their own right, and they have great lessons. Don't forget Bo was born in Ohio. We need to get that out as well. He was not <laughs> from Michigan originally. Thank you for, for bringing that up. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to throw something in here for fun. So one of my okay. first guests on the show, Chris Leak, who was the quarterback who led the Florida Gators to the BCS National Championship in 06, who played for Urban Meyer. Over the Buckeyes. Yes, he, he, he texted me yesterday and okay. there was an image that said, basically, if you could go to dinner with three athletes, who would they be? And so I responded to Chris with my answer. So I'm going to ask you now, who would those three be for you that you would go to dinner with and why? Do they need to be living? No. Now, see, I didn't okay. know that when I answered mine. I assumed they did. And then Chris told me his and not all three of his were living. So, no, they don't have to be living in this case. Okay. So the three that would immediately come to mind, Bobby Jones, uh, golfer, founded Augusta National, played as an amateur, really didn't make any money in golf. Just the more I've studied his life, I would love to have met him. I'd love to have a lunch with him. 
Lou Gehrig. Seemed like the perspective he held and the greatness he achieved was all very, very balanced. I'd love to have lunch with Lou Gehrig. And the third name you've probably never heard of, a guy by the name of Carl Erskine. Carl pitched for the Brooklyn Dodgers, who then became the L.A. Dodgers, actually played with Jackie Robinson. Uh, Carl is my grandmother's sister's husband. I never really got to know Carl, but he actually had a really, really good career in uh, Major League Baseball, won about 200 games, and, and just to play at the same time as Jackie Robinson and all the change that, that he drove, and to be a part of that team for a long time, not for a season or two, and being part of our family, I'd love to spend more time with him. Those oh, would be the three that come to mind. That's great. And you mentioned Jackie Robinson. So Jackie was one that Chris had mentioned was one of his three. So my three would be, uh, and I was assuming living people would have been Tom Brady, Mike Ditka, and Michael Jordan were my three. Okay, good pick. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to switch gears and do my fun two-minute drill, which is like a speed round. Seven okay. questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. What's your favorite food? Macaroni and cheese. Okay, what's your favorite movie? Star Wars. Which one? Original. There's only three as far as I'm concerned. The original three and the original one, although Empire Strikes Back is really close second. Okay. My, my daughter, who's 10, is a big Star Wars fan. I'll digress for a second. My son, who's seven, we for probably six months, he wanted to watch Empire Strikes Back every night before bed. And this was when he was probably four or five. And so we'd watch it. And I'll never forget one night, my wife said, Jack, I love you. And without pausing, he immediately responded, I know. I loved it. I was so proud of him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he wasn't, but I thought it was great. Oh, that's great. What's your favorite sports team? Uh, if you call the Buckeyes, because it's a college sports, the Buckeyes definitely far away. Second would be the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. What is one thing that people don't know about you? I turn 11 years old on Saturday this week because I was fortunate enough to be born on February 29th. Oh, very cool. Very so I cool. get a birthday every four years and the other three years. It's great. As you're younger, you're mad because you feel like you're getting shafted out of a birthday. And as you get older, you're like, this is great. My kids are going to be older than me pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, happy early birthday. Thank you. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you've gotten from a coach or a mentor? Hmm. I think back to what I talked about at the beginning, taking one for the team. It wasn't really a quote per se, but the amount of effort Coach Seiler put into not just saying it, not just doing a pep talk around it, but teaching us how to live it. And then when we modeled that behavior, recognizing us over home runs, big achievements, that sort of thing. And so that really, really stuck with me. There's been so many great coaches through my life, but that really, really stuck with me. Great. And what's the best piece of advice that you would give someone? Learn as quick as possible the benefit of being a wingman and just block out all the noise that says it's all about you. And if you're willing to do that in all of your life, not just at work, not just in your relationships, not just in your community, but everywhere, you will have the most fulfilled life you can imagine. That's great. And last question is, if you could be any superhero, who would you be and why? Is like Luke Skywalker considered a superhero? Because I would love to sword fight against Darth Vader someday. I've always wanted to do that. You can pick that, yes. Okay, that's what I'm going to pick. <laughs> okay, great. And now a lot of people listening are interested in how they can grow and progress their career. So what advice would you have for our listeners as we wrap up the show? What, what specific things would you tell people to focus on? Uh, let me fire off a few. 
One of the uh, the phrases we use as a team a lot is if you're not committed to reading, you're not committed to leading. And so back to my earlier points about so much of what we've been taught in leadership is taking the hill, being in the front, giving the big speech, winning the big deal. I think the greatest of leadership, A, servant leadership, being a wingman, whatever we want to call it, definitely a part of it. But B is acknowledging there's a lot of wisdom out there that's available for, frankly, nothing if I'm willing just to listen and open my mind. And reading is the ultimate form of that because you're ultimately saying, I'm going to give my very valuable time to hearing what you have to say about something. And so that's a huge characteristic I look for. Another thing that uh, I oftentimes, when we're doing interviews and trying to get to know people, is I want to know about their job history. And I'll give two big contrasts. You'll meet some people that'll share something like, you know, when I was seven, I found a way to help the person down the street deliver newspapers. And then at nine, I started mowing grass. And at 10, I, I found out I could remove snow. And then da 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 da. And for those people, work was a way to achieve greatness in life. You'll meet another group. Yeah, I kind of made it through college and then I had to find myself. And so I backpack in Europe for a couple of years and then I finally got a job. And for that group of people, work is an evil and it's like to be avoided until you absolutely have to do it to eat and survive. And so what I would say to anybody listening is work is not evil. Work is not oppressive. If you're in a bad job, we've all been there. It totally is. But work is one of the most healthy things we can do. And so seeking out work, almost the way we seek out exercise or the way we seek out a great restaurant or things that really matter to us is something that I don't see a lot of people think about or talk about, but be so vital. And then the last thing I would just say is back to the, the metrics that we use as a team, one that we use that I'm really proud of, we actually have some pictures around our office here, is I challenge every member of the team, find three people you can work with this year that as a result of our effort, see a promotion in their career. And I know not everybody wants to get promoted, but when you're a part of somebody going to the next level, to use a sports analogy, going from AA to AAA or AAA to the majors, and you had a hand in that through your project, through your coaching, through your expertise, you talk about just making life go from low definition Polaroid to high definition, this is how it happens. Because they'll call you afterward and say, do you know I was able to pay off my house five years ahead of schedule and you did that? Or they'll call and say, do you know I'm able to send my children to college? And I never thought we'd be able to afford to do that. And, and there's stories like this that all of a sudden when I go home at night, it's like, wow, we're doing a whole lot more than just helping the aviation industry and General Electric. So those are three things that come to mind. Well, that's great. I think it's important for us to remember that it's not just about what we do in our lives, but helping other people lift other people up, see them succeed, because that is going to be worth more than anything else that you could do in your career, just the personal fulfillment and satisfaction that you'll get by seeing other people around you succeed, because you were a part of their journey. So thank you so much for adding that to, uh, to the conversation. So as we wrap up today's show, any final thoughts for our listeners? I just want to encourage everybody that's listened to this last 35 minutes, please seek out more wisdom. I think subscribe to this podcast. I wasn't paid to say that. I'm saying that because Jen is someone that's doing this from the heart, who's been called to this and is excellent at this. I think each and every one, you'll get better, you'll get sharper, and you'll leave, like we were talking about, the feeling of serving somebody else, you'll leave better than when you started. And so that'd be my last parting advice is plug in. You're on the move and you're going places. And it just, it's so exciting to see you realize that. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you again so much for being a guest on today's show. My pleasure. 
And thanks everyone to listening to today's episode and we will catch you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, that you show up and that you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.